0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be addressing climate change and overpopulation. Recent comments in the media have once again sparked a panic regarding overpopulation and the environment. So what are the economics behind the issue? And are we facing an overpopulation problem? Stephen Barrows, Director of Programs here at Acton, joins me on the podcast to discuss. After that, we tackle Medicare for All, one of the main debate issues cropping up in the Democratic debates. On this segment, we break down the current problems we're facing in our healthcare system, as well as what the real costs of Medicare would be. If you want to read more about the topics in this episode, don't forget to check out our show notes posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Last but not least, if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Stephen Barrows, who is the newest addition here at the Acton Institute, now serving as our Managing Director of Programs to dispel some myths surrounding overpopulation and the environment. Stephen, thank you for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks.
0: Now, the latest alarmist quotes about overpopulation has come from the royal family. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry were interviewed by Jane Goodall, who is a British anthropologist. She was interviewing them for an upcoming issue of Vogue when she asked Meghan and Harry how many children they were planning on having, Harry said, only two maximum. He went on to say that, quote, we are the one species on this planet that seems to think that this place belongs to us and only us. Surely, being as intelligent as we all are, or as evolved as we all are supposed to be, we should be able to leave something better behind for the next generation, unquote. Jane, of course, congratulated Megan and Harry for making this good environmental decision. They were also praised in the media. I think one news source called AJ Plus congratulated them, saying, quote, having one less child is the most effective way to reduce your carbon footprint, said a 2017 study. It saves about 58 tons of CO2 per year, unquote. Now, of course, comments like this aren't new. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, told her followers in an Instagram live video verbatim, basically, that younger generations need to seriously consider whether or not they should have kids given climate change. So as an economist who has studied population economics, do we have an overpopulation problem?
1: Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is you know the, the concept of overpopulation presupposes an optimum population. And the optimum population as an economist is going to – theoretically, is just a theoretical uh, item of interest. But in fact, it presupposes all sorts of other conditions because the world is constantly changing. I think what's most in, interesting about the quote uh, from Prince Harry is that it betrays an underlying perspective of the human person – which suggests that the human person is ultimately a net negative, uh, not only to the planet, but to society as a whole. But if you take a look at the history of the world, you see that as individuals, as the population continued to grow, particularly in the past 200 years, we've seen also accompanying that increase in population and increase in the standard of living. And so these ideas can be traced back uh, you know, as early as uh, Thomas Robert Malthus and probably even beforehand. Uh, but certainly the idea of overpopulation is something that has become and proven to be a myth over time.
0: You mentioned Thomas Malthus there. He was an Anglican priest who, in the late 1700s, wrote an essay on the principles of population. What was in that essay?
1: Sure. So, so Malthus published that essay, the first edition, back in 1798, as you indicated, and then it went through subsequent editions. And basically, his his writings was based on just the basic empir- empirical observations he saw in cities in uh, in England during that day. And certainly, there were certain times and places where there was significant poverty and uh, and all sorts of pollution and waste in the city and disease. And so he observed those things and thought as a consequence of that empirical observation that this uh, spelled doom and gloom for the future of humanity. And as a result, he indicated that, you know, there's going to be a tendency for population to outstrip the resources and uh, agricultural produce to be able to feed the population. So he ended up being, uh, reflecting a very pessimistic idea. Uh, But I'm sure if Malthus was transplanted into today's world, he would be utterly astonished Mm -hmm. that that the planet not only didn't reach a steady state of population of around 1 billion people, that we have over seven times as many people today. I think he would have considered that to be inconceivable. So, yes, uh, that's that's the basic gist behind Malthus's essay.
0: What was he missing in the equation?
1: Well, a number of things. You know, the first and perhaps most important thing is he underestimated human in- ingenuity. You know, one of the things that we see here in people who are pessimistic about population growth is that they ultimately... Uh, view human beings primarily as a consumer of the Earth's resources rather than a creative entity that can take the Earth and its resources and fashion things that we would never imagine that would improve uh, the the lot of humanity. And so underestimating technology, underestimating human creativity and ingenuity is the fundamental flaw not only in Malthus's perspective but also those who tend to be what we call Malthusians today Mm -hmm. who are pessimistic about the human plight.
0: So I want to get into some quotes and claims that different scientific associations have said about the climate. Um, for example, the American Association for Advancement of Science said that, quote, observations throughout the world make it clear that climate change is occurring. And rigorous scientific research demonstrates that the greenhouse gases emitted by human activities are the primary driver. Another one says, The evidence is incontrovertible. Global warming is occurring. And if no mitigating actions are taken, significant disruptions in the Earth's physical and ecological systems, social systems, security, and human health are likely to occur. We must reduce emissions of greenhouse gases beginning now. Unquote. How are we supposed to um, balance all of these issues out? Because, you know, we could talk in circles about whether or not climate change is occurring and to what extent and how worried we should be about it in the future. So how are we supposed to fundamentally approach these issues? How do we weigh the costs and the benefits while also realizing, like you said, that, you know, people produce as well as consume? So, So how do we balance all of these ideas out?
1: Absolutely. Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, irrespective of the validity of the empirical claims about what's happening to the environment, I think that the first thing that people ought to bring to mind is that whatever those problems might be, human beings are also the ones that are able to respond to solve those problems. And so, if we have a situation where the environment was just undergoing all sorts of uh, uh, negative, uh, you know, increasing pollution and rising seas and other kinds of negative aspects, well, the planet's not going to solve those problems on its own. You know, it's not like the creatures of the Earth are going to go around and solve whatever problems they they observe in the the world. Instead, it's going to be human beings that are going to do that, right? And so, human beings are actually a positive, right? Human beings are going to be the ones not only that if they're... There are negative externalities that they create, whether it be pollution or whether it be overfishing or over-farming. These human beings are also the ones that would be able to identify those problems and then adapt accordingly. And as an economist, the thing that you would primarily look at to determine whether or not things are improving or not is to, to examine how individuals' life expectancies are changing, other metrics such as whether or not uh, global poverty rates are declining – as well as what's happening to the world in terms of scarcity. And so one of the things that economists in the way we view the world is that we say, look, the world is, is scarce by definition. The resources are scarce. And so the question is, how do we overcome that scarcity? And it's the pricing system that actually enables us to determine how to overcome those challenges. And the same holds true with the environment.
0: Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb in the 1960s. Do you know what, what year exactly it was? Maybe it was 1968. 1963? 68, okay. He, he later said, uh, quite recently actually, that, quote, the idea that every woman should have as many babies as she wants is to me exactly the same kind of idea that everyone should be permitted to throw as much of their garbage into their neighbor's backyard as they want.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I think right, right there we see uh, the underlying uh, perspective of what Paul Ehrlich thinks of humanity in general or the human person. You know, it was interesting uh, Back in the 1970s, there was a, a debate uh, that actually was placed in 1980 between an individual by the name of uh, Julian Simon, who was an economist, and Paul Ehrlich. And those two individuals had completely different views about the nature of the human person. Paul Ehrlich thought, of course, that increased humanity was a danger to society and to the, to the existing human beings on the earth and was a menace to the planet. Whereas Julian Simon, Simon, an economist, looked at the data and said, you know, in the end, human beings are a net positive. And in fact, he wrote a book called The ultimate resource. And they placed a bet over whether or not – and the sign and the, the the bet was over what would happen if we saw continued increased population and whether or not it would destroy the planet. And economists would take a look at this and say increasing population would result in higher prices. Why is that? Well, more human beings place more demand on the resources of the earth. And in economic theory, we see that prices would rise when there's an increase in demand. And so, they placed a bet. And the bet was to, you know, monitor a list of commodities into a price index. And, of course, Ehrlich thought that the prices would certainly rise over the course of a decade as human population increased. And Julian Simon countered with, no, human ingenuity is going to be so sharp and the price system itself will help divert choices and resources in such a way that you might actually see prices fall. Well, over the course of that decade, the bet, when it turned out from 1980 to 1990, the price index actually fell. And uh, Paul, Ehrlich won the, or Paul Ehrlich had to pay Julian Simon uh, the 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 price of the bet. So right there, we see. And I will at least admit that over time, if you take any random 10-year period, um, Julian Simon wouldn't always have won that bet. But the general thrust, is, and the point was made, that in fact, as human planet, as human beings increase their population, their ingenuity, their creativity, new technology overcomes some of the challenges you might see uh, with the pressure on the Earth's resources.
0: Now, Ehrlich, when he wrote The Population Bomb, it was partly inspired by his trip to Delhi in India, where he observed Mm, some starvation and poverty, and he immediately assumed it was due to overpopulation. Is this correct? I mean, how much of that also was a part of... Absence of property rights there.
1: Exactly. Well, I think one thing that you're describing here is Paul Ehrlich uh, seeing s- a situation of extreme population density, mm-hmm. right? But even population density is not necessarily correlated with uh, economic poverty or suffering. So, for example, if you take just two, two, two representative countries, let's take a look at South Korea on the one hand and Kenya on the other. You know, both of those countries are about the same population. Okay, South Korea happens to be highly more dense in terms of its population and. And it also happens to have at least a tenfold uh, per capita GDP. So here you have countries that have the same population; one of them is much more dense and also much more prosperous. And so population density does not necessarily point to uh, a situation of economic calamity or poverty. And so although he may have observed this in you know back in ni- the 1960s when he visited India, he really didn't understand the nature of what population density can actually create. And from an economist's perspective. Population density also provides the avenue for further division of labor, and the division of labor is one of the main uh, causes of economic growth through the centuries.
0: Why do you think that environmentalism becomes so overblown, basically becomes a religion to some people?
1: Well, I think a few things. Individuals uh, who... Uh, take a look at and their focus is primarily on the planet as opposed to the human person I don't think have a proper anthropology and so this then brings in the religious topic right so again coming from a Christian background uh, the anthropology that I adhere to is one that the 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 supreme creature is the human person created in the image and likeness of God. And so, if you, think, if you start off from that perspective, you're going to answer many of these questions in a different way. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to have to rely on something else. And oftentimes, it becomes that the only thing that really matters is what you can see in the planet itself. So, oftentimes, I think that individuals, they, they, they often are, are well-intentioned, um, but then they start to deviate the priorities because they have a, a false anthropology.
0: Another aspect of this conversation that people are beginning to worry about is underpopulation. Mm. Birth rates are falling in the U.S. and in Europe. Yes. Is this something that you're also worried about that you think will have economic detriment for us in the future?
1: Well, certainly the the idea of a declining population globally brings with it all sorts of challenges. And uh, if we actually see, it, you know, as is occurring in many Western cultures today and nations today, we see that it puts a special strain on certain social programs. And so when you have a, a ratio of retirees to young people and, and the working population uh, becomes a uh, too burdensome, then the whole systems that you have set up uh, for uh, taking care of individuals once they retire become under threat. You know. Furthermore, it hampers economic growth. So, if you take a look at China, China has already reached weak uh, peak workforce. So, their per- workforce has is not going to continue to increase, barring some dramatic change in immigration. And the reason for that is the momentum that has already been created by their one ch- child policy, now a two child policy, where they have predetermined over the course of the next several decades what their workforce is going to look like through that coercive policy. And so, China is already experiencing a situation where their economy is going to be hampered by these problems. So, it's not quite the same as the declining population because their population is still growing simply by virtue of momentum. Uh, but eventually, their population, barring significant immigration, is going to fall, and that's going to create all sorts of economic challenges for them.
0: I mean, that's exactly the direct result of government stepping in and trying to um, solve these problems that they just, they don't have any business trying to solve.
1: That's right. In fact, when you take a look at when governments try to make, uh, try to intervene in population, they oftentimes make it worse. And of course, the extreme examples is, as I just mentioned, with China, with its coercive policy. Uh, But even uh, governments that have attempted to step in to try to increase fertility rates oftentimes are unsuccessful and then create other kinds of perverse outcomes that they weren't anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so, in the end, and one of the things that many economists like to emphasize, including myself, is that individuals left to their own ingenuity are going to be able to assess in their own family circumstances what the optimum fertility rate is for that particular family. And uh, human beings aren't just behaving like animals, and and, uh, they have reason and rationality to adapt uh, to their particular circumstances. And so, left into the hands of individuals uh, with their free choice to... to, um, you know, pursue their family as they seem uh, fit uh, tends, to, tends to be the best outcome, lead to the best outcome.
0: Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure, Cohen.
0: The competitive market system thrives when firmly rooted in a free and virtuous society. Yet the news is filled with economic arguments against the free market. Terms like capitalism and crony capitalism are used with little clarification. Join us for an upcoming conference in Dallas, September 26 through September 28, to examine the distinctions between free market capitalism and crony capitalism. At this conference, we'll look at the defining characteristics of cronyism and its detrimental effects on diverse markets. Apply today at actin.org/events.
2: Welcome to Act in Line. I am your host, John Caritas. Today, we are welcoming to the podcast Eric Larson, a Grand Rapids, Michigan physician, an anesthesiologist by specialty, and he is also an assistant clinical professor at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Eric produces his own podcast, which you can find on all leading podcast publishing platforms, called The Paradox. P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, and we'll add a link to his podcast on our show notes. Welcome to ActinLine, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about Medicare for All, and I want to pivot from the recent Democrat debates in Detroit, the Democrat candidates, that is, and I want to turn to a source here, HuffPo. The headline in HuffPo said, The Detroit debate quickly turned into a big scrum over healthcare. And basically what they described was the candidates are going over how to do Medicare for All, not whether we should do it. This is a program, a policy prescription that has been uh, floated for some months now. Estimates range all over the place. Uh, Mercatus uh, estimated that Medicare for All as conceived by Bernie Sanders anyways, would amount to some thirty-two trillion dollars. So today, we have you on. We want a doctor's perspective on all this. So, what sort of questions would arise immediately when you start hearing Medicare for all? To me, Medicare for all sounds like a really great thing that everyone's going to benefit by. What do you What do you think?
3: Well, I think the, f- the first thing to, to recognize is that really no one knows what Medicare for all means. I think it's a sort of amorphous, ambiguous term, which is, I think, intentional when it when it's described as a single-payer system, which is essentially what Medicare for all, as devised by uh, Senator Sanders, as you're describing there, is a system that is a single-payer system. But when it's in polling, single-payer does not poll well. And so, it has been found that if you say Medicare for all, it tends to pull better. And so people are more inclined to support it because they know people, the elderly in general, uh, who have Medicare and they seem fairly comfortable and, ex- you know, excited to get to the point of the age where they can they can qualify for Medicare. And so I think that's the first sort of thing to recognize. And, and I think it's important to try and figure out exactly what we're talking about. And that's, any sort of political discussion, that's always the big problem, right? What are we, What are we talking about? Because it's hard to counter with facts or information if you don't even know what your baseline is.
2: So first of all, let's define single payer. That would be the federal government under Medicare for All. And would that necessarily wipe away private insurance plans?
3: Well, I think it would have to in the, in the Bernie Sanders uh, plan, because it, with a single payer, it has essentially the only payer for the health care service would be the federal government. And that is actually not even how Medicare works today. I mean, Medicare is—if you know anyone who has Medicare, there are there are services, there are costs that come outside the Medicare payment system. That would not be the case, as is my understanding in the the Sanders plan, that it would all be paid for by the government.
2: And today, on, as I understand it, if you have Medicare, you have to buy one or two or three supplements, right? It's not mm-hmm. like you're all in and you know just show them a card and you're no problem, right? Right. So here's a here's a factoid. Uh, it comes from the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. These are 2017 numbers. Approximately 49% of Americans have health insurance coverage from their employer. So we're talking about a massive structural change in how people pay for health care. Now, we, we've heard this as a health care crisis, but aren't we really talking about an insurance crisis, how people pay for health care? Health is pretty good in this country. Wouldn't you agree as a doctor?
3: Yeah, I think the, the the care you receive at the hospitals and through your your healthcare providers, your physicians is is pretty good. And I think you know you look at most metrics, the United States healthcare is is good. I think uh, when you look at what's wrong with the healthcare system, because I think you know when you saw the introduction of the Affordable Care Act, or also knows Obamacare, uh, there were clearly problems in the the way that healthcare is being delivered and paid for in this country. And and I think most people, their complaint is. Generally, with how it's paid. Secondarily, with how it's delivered. Mainly because of distortions caused by the way we pay for care. Right? It's not. It's not your normal transaction of most services. Healthcare is very unique, um, and whether it has to be that way, I mean, I think that's a good argument to have. Uh, and so, really, what we're arguing about is who's paying for our current system, and that's really what the debate is about, rather than fundamentally looking at whether the way we even structure the system by having an insurance-based way of paying for it is the right. Is the right answer, um, and so I think right now, when it comes to Medicare for all and the single payer, our discussions are about its cost, uh, and they should probably be more fundamentally about you know how we should how we should just deliver care in general.
2: Where do you see the big pinch points now in how we're delivering care in this country? What are the really big problems that you see in terms of how that healthcare is delivered?
3: Yeah, I th- I think when you look at the way it's delivered, the the big problem right now is the fact that the people making the decisions and the people who are having decisions made for them, <laughs> the patients, the physicians, there's no financial exchange there, and you have a third party who's making all the decisions in between. And whether so, it's
2: an employer or a, a government program, right, right? Whether
3: it's whether it's a, go- a government insurance or a commercial insurance payer, it's the same thing. There's someone else in the way and i think that's the problem that that people are dissatisfied with the way their care is delivered. i think you know when you look at healthcare what do people want? i think everyone wants pretty much the same thing. they want affordable care. they want to have care uh, that is delivered individualized for and personalized to them and to their situation and their goals. and they want something that works. and i think those are the you know the basics and i think everybody wants that. i don't think it matters what where you are on the political spectrum. it's just the question is how do you how do you get that? and uh, the current system i think doesn't really provide that. And so that's what people have, you know, as far as if you're a physician, you want to be able to make decisions and have a conversation with your patient about what's best for them. And right now, you feel like you know, there are all these impediments, whether it's uh, commercial insurance payers uh, who are saying, you know, we're well, not allowed to provide that medication. You're not allowed to do that procedure. You have to do these other tests. You have to fill out 27 forms to make sure that we, we can pay for that because you're not having, you're not able just to have the discussion with the patient.
2: So with Medicare for All, the messaging seems to be that there are too many people who aren't getting health care. Certainly that was the messaging during Obamacare. Mm -hmm. I think few people in this country would advocate a position where if you don't have the dollars in your pocket, tough luck, you know, we all want a system that can really help people get well if they need to. What is the situation today for low-income patients? have the, Has their lot improved much at all with Obamacare and the way things are structured now? Has there been much of a change from what you can see?
3: I don't think there's been a, a big, significant change. Um, I think it's still a struggle for people who don't, aren't employed and don't have insurance through their employer. Adding Medicaid, which is the Medicaid roles have certainly expanded in a lot of states, Michigan being Michigan one. one. Yeah, Michigan sure. has been one. Uh, even, having, even having access to health insurance, and especially a what I would say a poor one, which would be Medicaid, uh, because it it's pays the providers very poorly. It's low pay compared to commercial pay or even you know Medicare. It's yeah, I've heard doctors less.
2: complain about that system for a long time now.
3: Yeah, I mean it's a reality, and so I think you know people can get upset about it and say, well, they shouldn't demand more money or whatever for the services. But the, the I mean the fundamental thing is if you don't if you don't collect enough taking care of someone, you have on average ten people you have to employ per physician to run a practice, and if you can't pay those 10 people, you can't have a practice. And so and then you've got one less person providing care, and it's even harder to find a physician. And so uh, for Medicaid, because the reimbursement is so low, there's just no way you can make it work. I mean, you can't have people work and, and be, go bankrupt. Uh, that's not reasonable. You wouldn't expect that for anyone else in any the other sort of That's not profession. much help, is it,
2: really? Yeah, no. Yeah. So,
3: and so you can, you can say, well, we're providing care. We have people have uh, Medicaid. They're not actually oftentimes have access to physicians. Now, it does help sometimes for the hospitals because now when these people show up in the emergency rooms, the hospital gets compensated something from what before they got nothing. And so the hospitals are generally very much in favor of the Medicaid expansion. But from a physician standpoint, it probably doesn't help a whole lot because you're still not getting paid much of anything. And, and if you have a percentage, and you know, I'm trying to think, Sometimes more than five or six percent of your population is on Medicaid. You can't really keep the lights on, and that's and that's just the reality of the way you Because know, you, again, you have to have nurses, you have to have billing staff, and all this other support. All this
2: infrastructure needs to be around the physician to make mm-hmm. you know, to allow him to do his job. Let's go back a little bit to the cost. We saw one cost estimate is thirty-two trillion. Really, these numbers are <laughs> almost meaningless because who right. knows? Because everyone's got a different plan. No one really is serious about costs, although when the cost question does come up at the Detroit debates, see if I can find the quote here. Jake Tapper was the moderator, and it says here in the account in HuffPo, Jake Tapper was careful to note that the taxes would replace existing premiums people pay. Sanders shoots back, Jake, your question is a Republican talking point. (laughs) So I guess it's impertinent to talk about how much this will all cost us. And by us, I mean every single taxpayer in this country that seems to be off the table that there's some moral imperative in Medicare for all since it will be even better than Obamacare that even to ask the question is cold and heartless. But we got to find a way to pay for all this stuff at these huge added costs at a time when the U.S. is really quite deep in debt by trillions and trillions, 22 trillion last count.
3: Yeah, you, you're just spending your future, right? I mean, if you just look at the raw costs, I mean, it's anywhere from $1.3 trillion to 3 or $4 trillion additional expenditures per year. You obviously would save money in not paying premiums, as a you know, a patient. But the amount of extra in taxes or revenue that have to be collected somewhere, or in debt, which would be future taxes, I mean, it's significant. And so I think it's irresponsible to say to say we can't look at how much things cost. We look at how much things cost in every other part of our life why should it be different with healthcare? I mean, you could argue healthcare is more important, but I would argue that food's more important than healthcare, and having clothes and uh, and water, and yet we have a market system that you know is intact for those things.
2: Right, and then you're getting the argument that healthcare is a human right, which I'm not sure where you go with that. Like as you say, food, air, water, shelter—you could construe that as a human right as well. But someone's got to work hard and. Make some money and pay some taxes and pay for all this stuff at some point.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. And I, and I think the biggest, the biggest problem I have with the Medicare for All and that I think physicians should be most concerned about, and a lot of them are, is is really where do the decisions come for for delivering care? I mean, I think you you know, as you're taking care of patients and they have, you have to go through prior authorizations with your insurance company to right. get certain tests of things. There's at least a there's at least a difference in insurance carriers, and so there's a difference in, you know, what sort of tests are allowed in certain places. But if you suddenly have one system in place where everybody gets their care from the same rigid set of rules, who's now making all the decisions for the patients? It's not the physician, probably. It's not the patient. And so your care, if you want to be taken care of a certain way, you can't go to a different physician, a different hospital. You're going to get the same, technically, the same sort of decisions are made and the same access to procedures and surgeries will be the same everywhere. And that's not very individualized. That's not. I don't think that's what most people want with their health because I don't think everyone has the same goals in their health. And I, you know, I know physicians have different ways of you know attacking problems, and so it really removes any sort of individualization of care.
2: You're you're expanding the bureaucratiz- bureaucratization of medicine vastly.
3: You're truly number. I mean, it's a one size fits none program, right? I mean, it's. I'm gonna assume everyone wants to care delivered the same way. If you were to have any, and if you were to try some sort of hybridized system, which you, people have mentioned as well, like you know, the number many countries in the world have all sorts of private and uh, public options, you could not have as expansive a program as as what is proposed, because you couldn't possibly afford both of them. I mean, as expensive as this would be to add a private you know line in addition to that, yeah. continue to pay the premiums for most people privately, there's just no way you could. There's just no way it would be feasible.
2: Let's turn if we can to what you're hearing from other doctors. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's a longtime physician. He told me that about half of the doctors he knows were supportive of Obamacare, which surprised me. He says half are against it. So there's a it's hard to generalize about physicians, and they come in all shapes and sizes like other lines of work. What uh, are you hearing from other doctors now? And then let's look at your own specialty, anesthesiology. How would conceptually, if we had one, Medicare for all effect, what you do day to day?
3: Well, I mean, it, mainly interactions would be with payments. And so if for anesthesia specifically, Medicare payments are pretty poor compared to other specialties. And so, you know, it we don't like in economics to talk about a pie where you just divide up the pie because it's ever-expanding in the sure. you know, yeah. market system. but. In, when it comes to government payers, it truly is like a pie. And so you get your certain slice of what's Closer what to it, a
2: zero-sum then, right? It
3: absolutely is, right? And so for anesthesia, for whatever reason, it's just, it tends to be very, a lot lower for the government payers. Um, I, want, I want to say like 40% or 30% of what a commercial payer would be for Medicare, and Medicaid's like 5% or something. Quite a hit. Yeah, it's significant. And, it, and Medicaid certainly changes from state to state, so some states are a little bit better. But overall, it's not very good for anesthesia. So it make it you know just it make it tougher to find people who'd want to do the anesthesia because you know everyone wants to have be able to provide for their family you're coming out of medical school with a quarter million dollars in debt on average that's not nothing and especially when you're delaying your ability to earn any income really until you're age 30 that's a big sacrifice to ask for people um, and so i mean i think it from a will you find the best and the brightest to go into these specialties i think you know you're and make it, it'd make it more difficult.
2: Let's close if we could. You've done a nice job of explaining for us how the current system works against, in many cases, delivery of care and how the whole system is structured for pay. Do you, have you seen any proposals out there that you favor yourself that would be very helpful? Or do you have some ideas of your own, maybe isn't as comprehensive and as Bernie Sanders' plan, but you like, they, like what you've heard out there? For one proposal, perhaps.
3: Yeah, I, I guess I would say that I don't have I don't have an opinion on any specific proposal. I don't think there's been a, a there have not been very many innovative ideas from above, from Washington, uh, of ways of fixing the healthcare system. Because I think again, the problems are cost, access, and and uh, and those things are not really. Real solutions have not been proposed in any serious motion. I mean, the most you get from a Republican is saying, we're just going to get rid of Obamacare. Right. But that brings us back to where we, where we were before Obamacare, which was not in a good place either. I mean, that's why there's such an impetus to have a change at that time to try and control health care costs.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of political support for that, by the way. Sure. Half the country wanted it uh, very much.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, you're seeing people who are just as frustrated as they were then If and costs are even, have accelerated even more since then. Is it because of Obamacare or not? It's hard to say because you could you can't prove one way or the other. But you know, so when I when I look at, when I talk to people on my show, and I talked to a lot of physicians who have, are innovative and disruptive to the system, and um, there are people who are doing things that are actually helpful. That I think, and I think that it comes down to introducing physician and patients making choices in their healthcare and how it's delivered, and whether that's using a model that's outside the entire the sort of the traditional. Insurance-based system. Something
2: more entrepreneurial, perhaps. Or yeah. Your like, own way. You
3: right. Know? Like there's, there are physicians with what's called direct primary care. You have you have sure, docs yeah. who are now have a membership-based care. They have, they have they don't take any sort of insurance. They just say maybe it's fifty or seventy-five dollars a month for care with me. Twenty-four-seven access. I can provide medications. I can do discounted laboratories, um, imaging, and I can I don't provide you know care in the hospital, but I could for your primary care. I can be. That doctor that you don't have, the one who can sit sit down for forty five minutes or a half hour or an hour and just and figure out what's going on with you, at a value because healthcare is so expensive anywhere else, and so people are seeing that as you know an alternative, and that's a way of now you have a, a partnership with the patient. They're getting the kind of care they want. If they obviously aren't, they're going to go to someone else. But they're getting the kind of care they they do they want, and you're having discussion about the price and how much things you know cost as far as testing and laboratories, and you're getting what you. You're getting what you want, and I think I think that's that's one thing. So you know, it, I have, savings accounts are one option. Sure, uh, it's a small part of the market. It's only about a couple percent, in, but I think you know if that expands, that's one way of using an insurance-based product to sort of have people make choices about what they value and what they. A little they don't more
2: value. control. You know, mm-hmm. you can set aside funds. Yeah,
3: yeah, and that I think those are the sorts of things. Anything you can do to introduce choice and control for the patient in sort of how their care is delivered where they accept and understand the costs and the and the scarcity and the, the benefits more of the of the procedures and, you know, whatever they're getting, I think it's gonna be better for the system. I mean, to try and introduce it more to a market more of a market system where you have an honest transaction between the person who's providing the care and the person who's getting the care is going to help more than any sort of comprehensive plan any politician's gonna come up with
2: yeah and then i would I would assume that the patient then has better satisfaction with at least his role or her role in this whole relationship yeah i had I was able to out influence the outcome or how this the path of this care
3: yeah you're you're part of you're part of that decision making process and the the cool thing I've seen with this direct primary care, especially is I see people from all sorts of the the political spectrum so I don't just see conservatives, I don't just talk to liberals when you're looking for people who are doing an entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. If you have just people with one sort of political perspective, I think that's a problem. But when you, have, when you have physicians who recognize the value of this, it doesn't matter where they are in politics. They say, this is a great value to my patient. I get to practice the way I want.
2: They're focused on the work, not the ideology that they're right. hearing on CNN that day, right?
3: Exactly. And so, you know, and I mean, I had one who was really bothered by the government shutdown and all – and, you know, very liberal um, physician – so he was providing free care for with his direct primary care to people who were laid off from work as the government workers, which I think is great that people. And that have, was his call, right? It was absolutely his call. It's his business. It's his way of de- delivering care, and that's what his patients look for. And so that's that's the kind of thing we need. We need to have the ability for people to be innovative and disruptive into the market and to and to provide care in ways that we had not thought of before. Because if we think we're a top down method is ever the best way of doing anything in squashing entrepreneurial is it's always a it's always wrong.
2: Well, I suspect uh, over the next year as we're headed towards the 2020 election, we'll get more serious proposals, more options, let's hope more innovative solutions and creativity. One can only hope.
3: You are far more optimistic than me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but this has been great. Thanks for coming on the show today and we'd love to have you back as this thing percolates over the next few
3: months. It's my pleasure. I love talking about healthcare.
2: <laughs> I can tell. Thank you. Eric.
3: Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the topics in this episode, I've linked all the articles and extra resources in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.